The Rural Health Voice, Episode 20, National Policy. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. Do lawmakers in D.C. want to hear from people at the local level? Brock Schleybaugh, Vice President of Member Services at the National Rural Health Association, joined me to talk about effective ways to communicate with your member of Congress. So welcome, Brock. Good morning. All right. Now, you've been with NRHA since 2008. What changes have you seen in the rural health landscape in that time? Well, Beth, I can say that uh, coming to work for NRHA in that time frame uh, put put me on the horizon of passage of the ARA, the American uh, Reinvestment in uh, Act, and then came along uh, ACA in 2010. Uh, and then we had a number of budgetary crises, the Budget Control Act in 2013. Uh, then we embarked upon a rash of hospital closures and other such things in rural communities to uh, really get us to where we are now. And uh, a really nice uh, focus, I think, on rural health at the federal level. And I think a number of states are engaging in that conversation as well. Sure. So, so tell me more about that hospital closure crisis. What's going on with that? The hospital closure crisis uh, started uh, in 2010, uh, possibly a little before or after, and uh, this was due to a number of factors in rural communities that were colliding to create a very difficult situation for hospitals and providers. We categorize those as workforce shortages, the, vul- the populations that are vulnerable to disease and and um, um, comorbidities, uh, chronic poverty. Um, We have high numbers of uninsured in rural communities uh, that uh, compounded the ability for providers to to, uh, stay and work successfully. So so that's kind of uh, uh, some of the precursors. And then we started to see the rise in the closures uh, there in about 2014, 2015, uh, to where today we have 106 that have closed uh, in this time period. I will comment just parenthetically that um, this is the second closure crisis that we had in rural America. The uh, first period was just after the implementation of the prospective payment system in 1983. And in that uh, era, we had over 400 hospitals closed. So, so we've been here before, and uh, hopefully we're coalescing and coordinating our efforts way before we get to 400 to keep, uh, to keep our hospitals open. And we've seen two of those closures here in Virginia. Is this something you see you know, scattered equally throughout the nation? Is there a certain region where it's more common to have closures? How is that working out on the national scale? Uh, we're seeing, and I think the University of North Carolina Shep Center for Rural Health has established a correlation between hospital closures and the states that did not choose to expand Medicaid uh, per the Affordable Care Act. And so this correlation, uh, you look at the southern states, uh, I call it the I-20, I-35 axis. Um, 
you go down the center of the country and then you move uh, from Texas going out uh, east to the Atlantic seaboard. Uh, hospitals from uh, in these states have really been taking the brunt of the closure crisis. So Virginia, since we finally passed Medicaid expansion, hopefully we're a little out of the weeds. Well, it takes time. Uh, it takes time to implement, to get the pay, uh, get uh, community members enrolled, to get the get the get the rollout going, and so that it's effective. Uh, hopefully, you're you're in that process now, and uh, and that should start to hopefully see some improvement, uh, at least in terms of the levels of bad debt and charity care that uh, your uh, your members are are supporting right now. Sure. And with the two hospitals that did close, there are community groups working very hard to try to get them to reopen, and I I have high hopes for them. But in general, nationwide, is it common for a hospital to be able to reopen once it has closed? It's very difficult. Um, There's a lot of uh, regulatory issues that have to be uh, complied with. Uh, So, for example, I know facilities that have closed, and because when they closed, they did not meet uh, the more current standards of life safety codes, uh, they had a difficult time getting their building reopened because of life safety code issues. Uh, so you got details like that that can be expensive to rectify before you can get the facility open. Uh, then you've just got the the uh, uh, the lethargy that occurs because you've got to get medical staff, you've got to recruit workers, uh, you've got to get all of the necessary components to run a hospital. And that's a tough order for a rural community under the best of circumstances, yet alone uh, uh, reopening something that you've closed. I guess I'll take this opportunity to to offer an anecdote that uh, uh, one of our former presidents, Ray Christensen, used to always say is that uh, uh, rural health care is like Arctic tundra. Once you step on it, it's gone. And um, I think that uh, this is certainly no tr- less true in rural uh, health infrastructure. That uh, once it's uh, gone away, it's 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 really difficult to bring back. What policy initiatives do you see as being the most pressing right now on the federal level? Well, we're dealing with uh, several major trends that are obviously disturbing. One is the opioid crisis, and I know you all in Virginia are dealing with that, as uh, most states are. Uh, We're really pleased with the amount of investments that the federal government has made in correcting the problems uh, and helping to solve some of these uh, uh, substance use disorder problems. So, for example, the rural community opioid uh, grant program is uh, uh, one that I, I find is uh, rolling out very well. The Federal Office of Rural Health Policy is is working really hard to spend the uh, $200 million plus dollars that they've received for that program. And uh, hopefully uh, you all in Virginia are taking advantage of some of the resources that it offers. Uh, the rural maternity crisis. We're we're following that right now uh, pretty extensively. Uh, We have maternity deserts uh, all over the United States growing uh, pretty pretty fast uh, in many areas. Uh, This is due to hospitals that have, uh, for various reasons, decided that uh, they could no longer offer obstetric delivery services in their hospital. And this can leave uh, many uh, women uh, of childbearing years with tough choices to make in terms of uh, staying 
uh, in their rural community, how they're going to deliver their baby and how safe it will be to be an hour or so or more away from, uh, from their service. Uh, we're looking at, uh, in 1985, 24% of rural counties lacked obstetric services. Today, 54% of them do. And our friends up at the University of Minnesota, Katie Cosimonel and um, Carrie Henning-Smith, have done a great job of, of documenting for us uh, some of these trends and putting that in writing so that we can all understand it. And then in June of this year, June 12th, uh, 2018, uh, 2019, we had a Rural Maternity Summit, which uh, collected uh individuals from the American Hospital Association, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the American Academy of Family Practice, the American College of Nurse Midwives, and a host of other uh, organizations met uh, in Washington, D.C. at the invitation of CMS and really spent the day talking about this growing problem and how all of our associations can work with CMS to uh, end preventable morbidity, mortality, and racial disparities in rural uh, areas of our country. And we see that locally where, you know, we have counties in Virginia, certainly, where if a woman shows up to the emergency department in labor, she gets stuffed in an ambulance and gets driven to the next county. I, I can't imagine how that's the best possible outcome for a woman in labor. Oh yeah, that's um, that's really uh, stressful, um, and it and it really adds to a, a a very distressing time for the woman delivering because not only is she dealing with the stress of her delivery, but she's also at the same time dealing with the uh, added uh, dimension of this transfer and the questions that are going to happen. Where am I going? Who's going to deliver by baby? Is it going to be done safely? Um, yes, precipitous deliveries in the emergency department. We we uh, have been working with the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology on their levels of maternity care that they're developing, LOMC for short. And uh, it's interesting, uh, they identify hospitals between level one and level four. And uh, we have been talking about level zero hospitals. These are hospitals that don't have formal delivery services in their hospital. But as you suggested, uh, they do uh, see women uh, come presenting at the emergency department ready to deliver their baby. And so these level zero hospitals need support, and we need to make sure that they find the resources uh, so that in an emergency, they can deal with those situations effectively. And I've got to think there certainly has to be people in rural communities that think that there's a hospital there so they're okay, but don't realize that hospital doesn't necessarily provide all the services that they assume it should. Mm -mm. Yeah, and part of that is is just an educational uh, program. One of the things that we're talking about in the area of delivery is how can uh, hospitals in, a, in, a, in an area, say in a regional basis, coordinate services. So you may have a uh, tertiary hospital in uh, in a city and have five or six rural hospitals around it that don't have delivery, uh, that level four hospital, uh, which is a high acuity system, 
uh, could be supporting possibly prenatal care and other services in those rural communities and then set up a system of care that um, that ends with the delivery being made in that uh, in that center uh, city. And so these are the kinds of discussions we're having on how we can make it a, a positive experience for rural women to be able to not only live and work in rural areas, but also have their babies there. As the VP for member services, what do you see as the role of the NRHA members in addressing rural health issues? Uh, the work that we do at the at NRHA is dependent completely upon the uh, grassroots uh, e efforts of, of our members. Um, it's through uh, the inf influence that our members have there in Virginia and all over the United States talking to your legislators, uh, your congressmen, co uh, senators, uh, trying to convince them, educate them really on the needs that rural communities have. Uh, I find it fascinating when I talk to policymakers, both in Congress and in the executive branch, uh, just how much they don't know. And it's really our fault when bad legislation is produced or when policies come out of CMS that that really uh, take into account or don't take into account rural providers, um, it's, it's partly due to our not taking the initiative to educate them and fully inform them on those topics. And so that's what we're here to do is try to arm our members and your members and, and all rural providers and, and community members on how to be effective in advocacy uh, education on your behalf. And so, um, so that's the purpose of, of meetings that you'll be hosting uh, later this year and, um, and, how we'll, uh, and how we can help each other uh, work towards uh, improving rural health in the United States. Now, you talk about educating our, our members of Congress, our lawmakers, but when I look at Congress, I see yelling, I see finger pointing, I see partisanship. How can people promote rural health issues in this politically charged landscape? Well, I think that, first of all, uh, becoming uh, aware of the issues, so attending conferences like at the national level, at the state level, becoming informed is really important. The second is learning a little bit about social media and maybe involving yourself on Twitter uh, or in Facebook, and you can communicate with your legislators that way. Uh, the next uh, area that would be useful is in actually writing to your congressman or senator about the issue that you're concerned over. And often we'll provide you the information you need to contact your senators and, and, and congressmen with. And then finally, and most importantly, find out the schedule of your representatives and senators and invite them to come to your rural town, to your rural community. Uh, tour them in your hospital, your clinic, or your federally qualified health center, or wherever it is that you work. Um, sit down with them and explain to them the realities of what it takes to run a practice or a hospital or a social service agency in a rural population. Uh, and then lastly, uh, just being uh, um, making sure that that uh, uh, that your employees, your board members and other people in your organizations are aware of these issues as well. Um, I always tell folks that board members 
of hospitals and FQHCs and social service agencies, they are critically important in terms of communicating. So this is a kind of an all-hands-on-deck effort. And, um, and I encourage as much participation in this process as possible because I think that is what will achieve an outcome that's worthwhile. Sure. But you, you, you talk about writing Congress and inviting people out like this is, you know, my, me inviting you over for coffee. But mm-hmm. do, does anybody in D.C. really care about what I have to say with all the money we see flying around? <laughs> well, I can't speak for the people that you're talking to, but I can assure you that if you don't say anything or don't speak up, then they will never know. And um, and I think that this is a, also a par- a partly a, a, an effort of repetition and contrast. So repeating constantly the message uh, until it finally gets through. And I think that we have had remarkable success. Um, this current administration uh, serving us in Washington um, is... Was elected based on uh, largely rural uh, support in great numbers, and I think we're seeing uh, efforts at the at the federal level to to work with rural providers to um, do some positive things. So, for example, the CMS uh, rural listening sessions uh, have been engaged in by the CMS Rural Council. And we've seen, um, obviously, uh, some good things that have happened as a result, and then obviously some not-so-good things. But but that's what you anticipate in this give-and-take political system that we have in this country. Uh, we've had some positive successes in legislation. For example, we've we uh, uh, in the latest round of uh, opioid uh, misuse uh, money, uh, substance use disorder treatment uh, uh, money that was uh, appropriated by our Congress, um, it was a, due to effective um, lobbying and advocacy that got rural specific programming put together, so that uh, FRHP is actually administering a very large sum of money, $220 million. Uh, And otherwise, uh, what has happened in the past is those monies are delivered to State Department of Health, and then the State Department of Health is the one that makes the allocation decisions. And often we've seen in those situations that uh, states... uh, uh, that the money stays within the urban areas and just a little bit gets out to the rural parts. So, so we've had some effective uh, influence in terms of how legislation uh, is shaped, and we hope to have more as we approach the end of the year with some of our funding opportunities and appropriations. Sure. And I will have to make a little plug. The Virginia State Office of Rural Health has been a wonderful partner of VRHA. They actually sponsor this podcast and they've, uh, have grants every year to make sure that funds are being spent in our rural communities. So gotta get, gotta give a shout out to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. The state offices of rural health uh, are very much underfunded uh, compared to the work that they have to do. And um, so the state offices and then the state flex programs are, are usually affiliated with the uh, uh, state office of rural health. And uh Together, those provide some very important resources uh, to rural communities uh, in every state, of the, in 45 states in the country at least. And so, uh, yes, absolutely, uh, those are some important agencies within, uh, within our state government structures. Yes. 
And, and thinking more about the state level, um, you have graciously agreed to be a speaker at the Rural Health Voice Conference this November. This is the Virginia Rural Health Association's annual event. Do you think it's important for people to get involved at the state level in addition to the national? Don't most policy initiatives come from the federal level? Probably both and is the answer that I would give. I will tell you that structurally going forward, uh, we may have some innovation projects coming out of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. And I can tell you the uh, the ways in which those innovation structures are looking is that they could be state-based. And so they'll give states opportunities to participate in some of the innovations that uh, need to be maintained. And um, uh, so the action sometimes is at the state level. Uh, you all in Virginia were successful at getting Medicaid expanded. Uh, that took a lot of effort by a lot of people over a large number of years to make that happen. And um, so I can say that uh, I live in the state of Kansas, and um, we have come close uh, two years in a row now to uh, get Medicaid expanded in our state, and uh, we're very close. Hopefully, we'll do it next year. Uh, so yes, uh, a lot of the action is at the state level. It's where the rubber hits the road in terms of service to our communities. And so um, it's important to be aware at that uh, level as well, indeed. And that's where a lot of the uh, money decisions get played out on the local level as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, a lot of funds are distributed uh, in block grants or in large sums to the states, and then the states makes uh, those allocation decisions. And so, absolutely, being aware of those appropriation processes and and the agencies that are delivering those money to communities is extremely important. If people have a concern about rural health issues in their state or community, what would you recommend that they do? What steps can they take? I would say that awareness is key and uh, coalitions around the issue or issues is important. Um, so um, community action is always uh, welcome. And uh, when groups of people get together to focus on something, it's amazing the power that comes out of that in terms of uh, effect. And so um, a lot of times things can be um, viewed and, and lo viewed locally and uh, 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 people getting together to see how they can solve their problems uh, in, a, in a collective fashion. And then at that point, once you get the gaps that you have in your local community, uh, what are what are some of the areas or gaps that can be filled by those that are away from um, uh, the uh, the area? So it could be state partners. Who are some of the state partners? I always encourage people to look at non governmental agencies or NGAs. Um, uh, what what there may be some philanthropy, some foundations that possibly are interested in funding some uh, innovation projects or short-term uh, transition um, efforts to move to a new system of care. So you've got those options and looking for those funders to help at the state and at the state level. And then lastly, looking at uh, federal partners and what are some of the government grants and contracts that uh, might be out there that could be useful. I know in um, Virginia, I think you all have gotten some of the grants that FRHP uh, affords for communities and network planning 
um, and other kinds of uh, for, formation of networks in rural areas that can do the work that solves problems at the local level, but using some of these federal monies as levers for change. And uh, those are those are very effective and very powerful. And if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? I think that um, what I've been focused on and, and where my attention has been lately is looking at the social determinants of health and uh, understanding that our mission ultimately is to extend the length of life and to improve the quality of life of the rural people that we serve. And we have to look at the four domains in which that's done uh, in total, not just in one. And those are economic, economic, uh, uh, economic drivers, the behavioral health, behavioral issues, uh, clinical care, which is 20% of the total, and then environment. What are, what are the things in the environment that are impacting uh, positive health? So those four things together, moving out of the clinical care and focusing more in behavioral health and the economics of the community as drivers for change. And, um, and I'm really encouraged. I think that as we look to... Uh, programs uh, coming out of Washington that are starting to to drive us with incentives towards those goals, and um, and if I could do anything, it would be to uh, create community organizers in rural communities uh, that can look beyond the silos and boundaries of their institutions and their organizations and see how they can solve problems using the uh, uh, population health model. Uh, looking at the at the population as the patient and seeing what we can do to improve health um, in in a in a real effective way. Great. Well, thank you for joining me today, Brock. You're welcome. It's great to have this conversation, and good luck to you as you plan for your conference later this year. That's Brock Slaboff of the National Rural Health Association, encouraging you to get involved, break down silos, and work together to improve rural health. Brock will be the keynote speaker at the Rural Health Voice Conference, November 20 and 21. If you want to hear more from Brock and be part of the conversation about rural health, join us for the event. For details, visit vrha.org, click the Events tab, and select Annual Conference. The Rural Health Voice is a podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.